I'm a little bit concerned this morning. Um, I got the order of service, which I'm always grateful for, although typically the pastor's on last. And on the left-hand column, there is a, a column's headed length in minutes. And I get down to message, and it says in the column next to it, length in minutes, zero. <laughs> so let's have the benediction. I take that this is not some critical expose of what the content of the sermon is going to be and this is just a computer glitch. So let's work on that basis, shall we? Forgive each other just as Christ in God forgave you. Are we up for the challenge? Would you agree with me that that's a pretty tall order? Forgive each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. In the fifth chapter, which follows on the theme and picks up various pieces of it again, continues it in many ways, there are these statements. In verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. You see, here is the thing about our life in Christ. When we first come to him, he forgives us and wipes, us, wipes the past out. He renews us and makes us new. The process is so profound. It's not just dusting off a little bit. It's not just smoothing off a few dark edges. The process is so profound that Jesus referred to it as being born again. Nicodemus, to whom this command was addressed, you must be born again, was mystified by it. What do you mean? How can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? It sounded impossible. Ask anything of me, but not that. We're all familiar with the children's story, Humpty Dumpty. I'm convinced that these old stories were developed in times past to prepare children for later trauma. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Humpty Dumpty fell off and got to pieces and Humpty Dumpty will never be right again. How is it possible to reshape ourselves in such a way to start again. And yet that is what God has done for us. And then there is the challenge that we should, in the power of the Spirit and in a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving, make sure that we work out the goodness of God through our own lives. And so there is a growth in our Christian experience and in our maturity that matches our standing before God. So that one day, when that final moment of our lives come, we stand in his presence and he makes us like Christ. He completes the job, if you will. So that is the challenge. We ought not to see the challenge that Christ presents to us, that God 
presents to us as something only to do with forgiveness. It's a daily challenge that has a multitude of facets in our human experience. Be imitators of God. Wow. When I was born a fair while ago, I don't remember much about it, it was something of a surprise. Not that my mum was unaware that she was pregnant, but I had two much older sisters, and there's a 13-year gap. And mum was told after the birth of the second sister that she would not be able to have children again. See, I'm a miracle. So it was a bit of a surprise. Not only that, dad was on the end of three sisters. And the Lockyer name in Australia, at least, there's plenty of little Lockyers running around in Kent and other parts of southern England. But in Australia, the, the Lockyer name was threatened to, to disappear. And so I rescued it. I'm not sure that that's a great achievement, but there you go. And so Dad was particularly glad that I was born, although you would never have known it from the comment that he was supposedly made. When he saw me for the first time, he said, Good heavens, he looks like George Arliss. Now you ask, who the heck is George Arliss? Well, he was a British movie star, and he was the first English actor to be awarded an Academy Award. That was back in the late 30s, contemporary with my dad's experience of growing up as a young man. And George Arliss, before he became an actor, was a professional boxer. Well, come on, this is not funny. <laughs> now, apparently, my birth was somewhat traumatic, not only on my mum, but on me. And I come out looking a little bit strange. My immediately older sister, some eight years older than me, uh, with her medical experience as a trained midwife, uh, just recently in a phone conversation when I checked this story for its accuracy, said, well, you came out a little overcooked. I think that's a technical term that you learn in midwifery school. I'm, I'm not sure. But whatever, apparently I was misshapen. <laughs> Cauliflower ears, perhaps. I don't know. And you say, what's the point of this story? Well, I think there is one. I'm getting to it. When I was about eight, I was being bullied at school. I was having my marbles stolen. Now, I tell you, when you're eight, you had your marbles stolen. That was pretty serious. And uh, there was a bit of fisticuffs involved as well. And I came off second best. And so Dad, hearing about this, decided to give me a few boxing lessons. And his command to me was, you've got to fight like George Arliss. Well, I thought, well, that's the end of that. Why? Because I'm not George Arliss. I'm an eight-year-old kid. I'm not a professional boxer. How am I meant to box like George Arliss? Now, Dad didn't quite mean that. He tried to teach me George Arliss's signature uppercut. Well, thankfully, I never learned it because I would have done serious damage. But the point is, with all Dad's good intentions for one of his heroes, I was not a professional boxer. I could not imitate George Arliss. Be imitators of God. You've got to be kidding me. It's bad enough trying to be George Arliss. 
How are you and I supposed to do this? Now, I suspect that that is a thought that runs through the mind of anyone who has suffered the trauma of a considerable wrong. Oh, not one that they've invented, not one that they've blown up, not one that they've ignored their own role in perhaps the mess, whatever it is, but a significant trauma and they read in the scriptures you are to forgive the person. Be like God. Now we may think to ourselves, well I'm not going to say, well I'm not God and how am I going to do this, but that's what we think. We're not going to say it out loud. We're just going to say, oh that's difficult. Yes. But I suspect that we tend to give up because being crushed by a wrong, by being damaged by an injustice, by carrying wounds that fester. We know how hard it is to do what God suggests. Oh no. <laughs> to do what God commands. To do what he expects. To do what he stands ready to provide all that's needed for us to be who he's called us to be. We say no, it's too hard. I can't do it. And there is an undertone that says, I won't do it. The hurt is too deep. The wrong is too great. The effects are disastrous. I will not ever recover from this. Why should I offer a recovery to that other person. You see the problem. Well, the alternative to forgiveness and its effects, well, there's a number of alternatives, but let's concentrate on one that is a cancer that eats us to our heart and back again, bitterness. You will excuse me because my eyesight, amongst many other things, is failing and I can't read the screen at the back. So I'm going to turn my back on you for that smaller print. Bitterness is prolonged retributive anger suppressed or acknowledged toward another person. Now the presenting course is, of course, the offence. And let's take it for granted that there is truly an offence. It's not just and imagination, not something we've blown up, not something we've ignored our own role in it. There is a real offence. Let's take that for granted. But in the brewing of bitterness, that's our response. If the offence is a fact, the consequence of the bitterness is a choice. We say, no, it's not. It's just a normal consequence. If you drop off a building, you go splat on the ground. It's not a choice. It's just gravity. We say, if we're wronged, we become bitter. That's just a given. Well, apparently not, according to God. It's a choice. For he is presenting us with an alternative, you see. So therefore, it must be a choice. 
The consequences of bitterness were first of all emotional. Now from 1 Samuel, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Now Jonathan had good reason to be angry at his father's response to his friend. But leave that aside for a moment. And we all know what that is like. Now, of course, I don't know because I'm a reverend gentleman and I'm above all of these things. <laughs> Did I sell that real good? Are you buying it? Oh dear, I'm not such a good a preacher as I thought I was. I know all about anger that debilitates life itself. I went through a period of profound disillusionment. I felt that I was betrayed by those closest to me and it came very close to destroying me. For a while I actively looked for something else to do with my life than to be a pastor. I was in a wilderness. Another church approached me, leadership asked me to become their interim pastor. I did go along to visit with them, for I was somewhat desperate to make a, a living. But in a fit of honesty, I said, if I were you, I wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. Well, I think they were being gracious. I thought at the time they were being dills. But they said, no, no, we want you to come. So I did. I can't say I went with anticipation or joy. I actually intended to simply go through the motions to do what I needed to do, to con my way through whatever it was that the day presented me. Now, all pastors, to a point, are experienced in that. Let me explain what I mean. We might be going through any number of difficult times, personal experiences, family, whatever it might be. It might be heartbreak. For months on end at Colac many years ago as pastor, I had a son that was young son that was seriously ill in hospital in Geelong for months on end. Surgeries, one after the other. Do you know how hard it was to get up Sunday by Sunday and preach and come before the people of God with joy? But I couldn't be me, if you will, or at least not totally. I had a role and I had to do it well before God. And yes, I had to do it honestly, and so I didn't shirk the fact that I was in difficulty. But it's not easy. And so in part, being an actor is part and parcel of the pastor's toolkit. And I remember distinctly driving across from where we were living in Baronia some 15 k's to the church office and as I drove the car I was seething with anger. It was boiling up inside of me six months, eight months after the event. 
and I was thumping the steering wheel. I stopped at the traffic lights, fortunately. And I was really telling people off. They weren't there, of course, but made me feel good. Until I noticed that somebody next door to me was staring at me with open eyes and mouth. I admit I recovered. And not because I was convinced that I'd been a hypocrite as a Christian, but because they thought I was an idiot. Well, I probably wouldn't disagree with that judgment either. But it was a wake-up call to how destructive, to how pointless was my behaviour, how deep was the rut that I was digging for myself. It takes its emotional toll, but it also takes its relational toll. Esau held a grudge against Jacob, his brother, because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. Now I admit this is a little extreme. But such bitterness will always take its toll. We think we might be covering it. We think we might have suppressed it. We think we might be floating above it and nobody notices. Well, maybe they may not be able to tell you exactly what's going on with you. But it can't but help poison every relationship to some extent. It's a creeping sickness. It's a decay that floods through every pore of a person's expressed character without them even knowing it. And it will break relationships down. And of course, spiritual. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger. It's bad enough that the relationships around us are affected by our bitterness, by our refusal to forgive, to move beyond it. But it will affect our relationship with God. It will affect our relationship with God. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness. He does not know where he's going <coughs> because the darkness has blinded him. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Hatred, discord, fits of rage, but the fruit of the Spirit, and so it goes on to list goodness and kindness, etc. You see, in that plane of growth towards Christ-mindedness, when bitterness and anger take over, we go on a reverse course to that growth. Yes, it affects us in every way, and in every direction. When we express our bitterness, we're shooting ourselves in the hope that the recoil will bruise whoever has offended us. <clears throat> Did those whom I held responsible for what I saw, and I think quite rightly, 
as an act of injustice? Were they affected by that rage in the motor car that day? I'm sure that they had no idea. I'm sure that it didn't touch them one little bit. If there was any damage being done, it was being done to myself. Pointless. <clears throat> so let's have a look at what forgiveness is not. Well, first of all, it's not denying that the offence has occurred. We can't suppress it and just say, oh yeah, I'm over it. It goes deep and it spreads the same way as if it was openly acknowledged and acted on. Forgiveness is not minimising the offence or the effects of it. Oh, it was no big deal, we shrug it off, we pretend to others that Christian conviction has taken over, that the Spirit of God is at work in our life, and we say, oh, that was nothing really, ah, gone, over it. No. But it sounds good, and others will be fooled by it. Oh, look, isn't it wonderful how they're coping with it? Well, no, we're not really. Forgiveness is also not tolerating future injury. How many times have I seen in domestic disputes where a person has put themselves in a position where they are hurt physically, emotionally, financially, over and over and over again. But I forgive my husband, typically, but not always, it is the husband. I forgive him. And you've just given him a license to do it again and again and again. Forgiveness is not, oh yes, I, you know, we just stay in the same rut and the same thing happens all over again. Forgiveness is not agreeing to trust. Now it may well be that a person has wronged us and it's out of character to them. It's a one-off situation under whatever pressures they may have been going to. And when the person recognises that and when in mutual tears trust is re-established, that's one thing. But when there is no movement from the other person, then trust may well not ever be established, even though you may generally extend forgiveness in Christ. And it doesn't mean that there will be reconciliation. <clears throat> you see, in this we are not God. When God forgives, he cancels the sin. When God forgives, he gives new life. When God forgives, he provides the spirit to be at work within us. And the forgiveness of God begins with what? Jeanette read the verse of scripture in her prayer. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess the forgiveness of God involves two parties at work to the same end. Oh God, I'm in the wrong. I have offended not only whoever it might be, but I have offended you. Forgive me. 
When a person humbly comes before God, the work of God can begin and does. But the command that we have to forgive does not require the cooperation and the partnership of the one who has wronged us. We are called by Christ to unilateral action irrespective of whether we feel like it and irrespective of what the other person is going to do. Do you understand that point? Because this is critical. If we continue to see forgiveness that we extend as the same sort of forgiveness with the same results that God extends to us, then we will never get the forgiving because we can't do it. We can't change that person's character. We can't change that behaviour. We can't make them start again. We can't give them new life. And in that we are not God and are not called to give that sort of forgiveness. But in attitude and actions we are called to model the forgiveness of God to others, irrespective of their cooperation and irrespective of the consequences. What forgiveness is? It's a conviction. It's a crisis of the will. Not to forgive is hypocrisy. You see, so often we approach this on the sense of our feelings. Oh, I don't feel like forgiving. I can't do it. I'm not in the space where I could possibly do that. The command to forgive is not a command for us to think about it, to get right in a position where it's possible. It's simply a command to act. In what way? Well, let's have a look. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you have. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I cancelled all that debt of yours, said Jesus, because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. In that parable, Jesus spells it out plainly. This is not addressed to our feelings, it's addressed to our will. So then, how do we act? Well, first of all, it gives up the right of retaliation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to to our iniquity. How many people I have met that they spend an inordinate amount of time plotting the downfall of somebody that has injured them? I'll get you back. If you forgive someone in Christ, you give up that whole plan of action. It goes in the waste bin. It no longer is a preoccupation. It's no longer even something you toy with when nobody else is around. But beyond that, it's the assuming the responsibility to act lovingly. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, it may not be possible, of course, to continue any relationship with somebody who has grieved us seriously. But it is always possible, even on the quiet, to do something, to say something, to offer something in some way, in some circumstances, 
but says, I am not out to restrict you in any way, to pay you back in any way. In fact, I will find a way to do something to encourage you, even if you never know about it. That's an extreme case. If you're in relationship with such a person who has hurt you, if it's in the workplace or the family, then find ways to do exactly as the Lord has commanded us here. Fourthly, it's standing with Christ in overcoming evil. To this you were called, says Paul to the Romans, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. However bad the wrong has been done to you, there is something far worse. That you allow that evil to shape you and your life. That you allow it to have the last word. That you allow it to define you and your future, that you allow it to construct a rut that becomes so deep, with walls so steep, that there is no escape. There are two deaths, you see, not just the pain of the wrong itself, but the pain of its victory over us. And in Christ, do not ever allow that to happen. Because God has said that your wrong, your sin, is not the last word. My grace will be the last word. Praise God. My grace will be the last word. Even beyond time, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be no more crying or sin or pain. Evil will not have the last word. Evil will not have Victory, the grace of God, will have the victory. Anticipating that God will work for good. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are being called according to his purpose. <clears throat> well, what happened to me in that incident that I recorded, my rage in the car, by telling the church leadership that they really should go find somebody else to be their interim pastor. Well, they called me as the pastor, I accepted, and I was nursed back into health by a congregation of people who did nothing other than love me and support me over the next eight years. I went into that situation vowing and declaring that I would never, ever, ever, ever trust the leadership of a church again. Those good folk never deserved that promise. And I spent a couple of years before I crawled out of that particular hole and allowed their love and their support to carry me. How I praise God for them. There are other things that happened as a consequence of 
that startling change in my life that I could never, ever, ever have anticipated. God does work for good. We may not see it immediately, and if we're thumped with that verse in the middle of our pain, we may not even want to hear it. Now that doesn't mean that it's not true and it won't work itself out. You intended, said Joseph to his brothers, to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what has now been done, the saving of many lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German Lutheran pastor who established an underground seminary when the Lutheran church in Germany threw itself in with the Nazi party before the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a critic of Hitler, established an underground seminary to train young men to continue to pastor those churches that met in secret, in defiance of the government. Eventually, during the war, Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo and tortured, thrown into a concentration camp and executed just a few months before the war's end. But in a little manual he wrote for the students that gathered together in considerable danger and under considerable pressure, he wrote this. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother? Will not his sin be an occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can live by our own words and deeds, but by the one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so, particularly within the confines of the Christian community, you live together long enough in Christian fellowship, and I guarantee you that you will manufacture enough ammunition that your brother may justifiably, at least in his own mind, shoot you with it. That's one of the downfalls, you see, of living together in close community. You open yourself up to hurt. The same is true in any close personal relationship. And it will happen. If it hasn't already happened to you, well, you are a miracle, but it will happen. The question is, what do you do with it? Some years ago, when I was a young youth pastor, and that was some years ago, I came across a book with all these cartoons in it, and I kept it. I've added a bit of colour to it. Here is God who has taken a bit of a lobotomy exercise there and has dusted out the brain. Temper, lust, laziness, lying, gone into the trash can. Do not confirm to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Are you up for it? In the presence of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, you are. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the most extraordinary thing that has ever been done. When you forgave us, 
when you took our sin and loaded that on Jesus and took his life and loaded that on us. We praise you for your goodness, for your indescribable grace that goes against everything of our fallen nature to produce a living, growing miracle. Help us, Lord, to be your people. Help us not only to live in the light of your grace, but be a channel of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.